0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Climate change is not likely to be a cliff from which we fall. It is much more likely to be a persistent condition that societies are going to manage for better or worse.
1: Hello, welcome to Science on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So this is an episode in our climate series, and it's one of the ones I've been most excited to do because it's been one of the biggest holes in my climate knowledge. It's about geoengineering, and I don't think anything in the climate debate is necessarily as polarizing as geoengineering itself. The idea here is we're going to make large-scale changes. We're going to engineer large-scale changes to Earth. So in the uh, the way Oliver Morton puts it in his great book The Planet Remade. We can decouple the effect of carbon emissions from the effect on our climate. And so this often means, you know, blasting sulfates into the stratosphere. So you're creating a veil around the earth so less sunlight gets through or creating lots of plants. Um, And here I mean uh, factory plants. We could also actually do it through plant plants like trees, such that you're sucking carbon out of the air and storing it underground somewhere. There's a a huge range of ideas in this space. But they raise incredibly difficult uh, questions about what we know about global governance and, in a more fundamental way, what are we trying to achieve here? Are we just trying to block the effects of climate change? Are we trying to change our relationship to the world? What is it safe for human beings to do to the planet, even given how much we've already done? How different is geoengineering from some of the other solutions or lack of solutions on the table? And how do we even how do we even make those decisions? Who gets to be involved when we make those decisions? Geoengineering is really controversial because a lot of people worry that if we even talk about it, it will reduce support for approaching the climate problem in other ways through mitigation, through decarbonization and so on. We talk about that too here. Not a huge fan of that argument, but but I I do want to make sure we consider it. But I think it's an important thing to discuss because if we are on the path we are on, we may end up eventually having no choice. I looked a lot for the right guest on this, Um, somebody who really understood the space, but also was able to communicate it and also came to it with, I think, a lack of... A lot of people are either hardcore pro-geoengineering folks or they're hardcore anti. And I was really looking for somebody who is able to understand and explain the debate without... Deeply falling into advocacy for one side of it or another. And Jane Flagel, I think, is just amazing on this topic. She directs grant making on climate change at the Bernard and Ann Spitzer Charitable Trust in New York, but, but we're really talking to her here. She's an academic at Arizona State University, um, their school for the future of innovation in society. And she studies solar radiation, geoengineering. She's done great work looking at the ethical and legal frameworks here, looking at the social science here. And I think is just able to communicate both the debate here, but also a broader approach to climate change in a really valuable way. As always, my email is Kleinshow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. But here is Dr. Jane Flegel. Jane Flegel, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having
1: me. So I wanted to begin with something I've heard you say before, which is that climate change should be understood as a risk management problem. Like, what does it mean to understand it as a risk management problem?
0: Yeah, as um, others have pointed out, it sort of seems like quite an anodyne assertion <laughs> at some level. But I think There's been a tendency in um, conventional environmental advocacy to approach climate change as sort of a problem of conventional pollution control, the way that we've approached other pollution control problems like acid rain. And there are a couple of reasons that doesn't quite work with climate change, in my view. One of the reasons that's the case is because climate change is a side effect of basically the lifeblood of the modern economy. So um, it's much harder in a lot of respects. The other piece of this is that because of inertia in human and planetary systems, even if we were to sort of solve the source of the climate change problem, i.e. stop emitting, um, greenhouse gas emissions, we would still be committed to some level of climate impacts. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in the climate system um, from a range of perspectives that mean that we need to think about diversifying the set of tools we have to manage what are at some level unknowable risks.
1: So uh, I want to zoom in on something you said there, that it is different than traditional pollution problems. So when you say that it's actually a different approach, what does the other approach look like? Like what what are the... Like implicit assumptions of the other approach.
0: I think part of it is that that you might assume that there is sort of a a magical panacea for addressing other pollution problems where you just sort of staple uh, something on the end of a tailpipe, for example, and collect the pollution and then the problem stops. Um, But that is just not the case for climate Because of the persistency problem and the inertia problem that I just discussed, and because of sort of the um, lock-in of infrastructure that we currently see. I think you see this issue playing out in contemporary debates about climate policy in the U.S., where, um, you know, for a long time we thought about climate policy as being principally about pricing or regulating carbon, and that 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 would solve the problem. And now you see folks like advocates for things like the Green New Deal talking about the need to basically rethink all of the infrastructure we've currently built and plan to build um, to power our economies, which is a very different thing.
1: So one argument I've heard, or metaphor I've heard for this from the Breakthrough Institute folks is this asteroid versus diabetes metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say, well, it doesn't work because diabetes isn't bad enough. And you can you can put in as bad of a chronic <laughs> disease as you want, although the diabetes can be very bad. Yeah. but um, But that actually I thought was helpful, that there's an idea that, In 11 years, the climate asteroid hits and like we either get out from under it or the whole world is destroyed, more or less. That's the implicit story there versus we're going to this is going to be with us forever. Mm -hmm. And it's going to need a huge range of solves, fixes, approaches in order to just manage it to something that we can tolerably live with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. And I actually think Dr. Kate Marvel, who you had on an earlier podcast, um, very eloquently described this issue which is that climate change is not likely to be a cliff from which we fall it is much more likely to be a persistent condition that societies are going to manage for better or worse and to your point these chronic conditions can be absolutely terrible so um so it's not a it's not doesn't make it easier actually so what
1: is geoengineering how do you define it
0: um, You know, there's a really long uh, definitional politics around geoengineering that we could get into, but I think the- Sounds basi- super fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> But the basic definition of geoengineering is the deliberate large-scale intervention in climate systems to counteract the effects of climate change. That was sort of how the Royal Society and the UK defined geoengineering in their sort of seminal 2009 report on the topic. And generally speaking, it had been historically that geoengineering encompassed two sets of techniques or strategies. One was about uh, carbon dioxide removal, so removing carbon dioxide emissions from the ambient air. That's carbon dioxide removal. And then there's a separate set of techniques that people tend to talk about as solar geoengineering or solar radiation management. And that is essentially about increasing the reflectivity of the Earth to cool the planet.
1: So uh, I want to do a couple framing things before we get into those more deeply. Um, one, I, when I was preparing for this, I read uh, Oliver Morden's really great book. Mm-hmm. I really recommend it to people interested in this called The Planet Remade. And he had this definition in there that I wanted to, to run by you where he said, geoengineering, Tim, is processes where, quote, the Earth system is manipulated in such a way that climate and carbon emissions are no longer so tightly bound. And I thought mm-hmm. that was really helpful. Mm-hmm. The way you're trying to do is decouple the emissions um, from what is happening to the to the broader climate.
0: Yeah, I mean that's actually that actually gets to the leverage, particularly in the solar geoengineering. I mean for both, but for solar geoengineering in particular, where the idea is basically that you yeah decouple or de-link CO two concentrations in the atmosphere from the temperature that the Earth experiences.
1: Yeah, I just for some reason that really helped clarify it for me. Um, the other I just want to make two framing points for people coming into this, because something that's been striking to me really trying to understand the climate space is how many implicit stories and assumptions are operating behind the scenes in conflict with one another. And so one of the ones here that even I realize I had in some quiet way, but is something that every geoengineering paper I've now read spends a lot of time arguing against, is that it's not all or nothing that it's not that we can do geoengineering or we can do decarbonization and other mitigation strategies that if we did end up in geoengineering, it would probably be part of a large basket of approaches. So you're thinking of it as one as part of a toolkit, not as an alternative to everything else.
0: You know what, Ezra, you um, accidentally walked yourself right into the definitional politics question, (laughs) because um, (laughs) I know Oliver in particular is someone who has maintained that for the reasons, for exactly the reasons you just laid out, it is quite useful analytically to think about geoengineering as inclusive of both carbon removal and solar geoengineering. Engineering, And that's because in any reasonable construction of solar geoengineering where it actually delivers benefits we'd hope to see – and we can talk about who we might be um, – it, it is essentially dependent at some level on not only decarbonization, but carbon dioxide removal. Because if you were to stop solar geoengineering, which you would want to do, right, we wouldn't want to be maintaining a sociotechnical system that was reflecting the sun into perpetuity for all sorts of reasons. And if you want to stop doing it, you cannot do that unless and until the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere has also been reduced, lest you commit the planet to very rapid onset of warming but the reason there's a definitional politics here is because generally speaking people who know anything about geoengineering find it sort of terrifying just in principle and folks who think about climate policy are increasingly i would say sort of mainstreaming carbon dioxide removal even as solar geoengineering remains pretty taboo and that that might also be changing so the point is that folks who are interested in developing carbon dioxide removal techniques do not want to be at all affiliated with uh, blocking the sun.
1: And uh, Now we've wandered into mm-hmm. my weird definitional theorizing. So when I was, and, and I promise everybody we're going to go way into these a- a- actual techniques if you're confused at the moment, but something I was going to get at later. When I've been reading through all this, something that has struck me is that I don't actually think the geoengineering distinction is super useful, that it seems to me that in the way people react to these different approaches, um, particularly the way they react to solar radiation management, where we're you know putting a veil across the stratosphere to to block some of the incoming sunlight or doing something like that, versus um, we're going to have a bunch of machines that suck carbon out of the air and bury it in the ground somewhere. They're much more comfortable with the second. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you see that in a lot of places in this debate, such that it often seems to me that the real distinction is that people are pretty comfortable with solutions that use technologies that sound familiar to just go backwards to 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 put the earth back in a way they understand it versus an intervention that is doing something new to the earth system that has a lot of unknown unknown effects. Um people are very nervous about that and I think that even includes things like nuclear where it's not obviously a new intervention but it still has that same I don't know. I don't really understand it. Like it feels like too technologically out there. It has long term effects. We don't fully know how to manage or possibly don't fully know how to manage. And that just a lot of this debate is turning on this question of, are you doing something new that metaphorically to people feels like what we did in carbon emissions in the first place? Or are you reversing what we've done? So you're moving back to an older version of the earth that we're more comfortable with.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I mean, I can say because I've done some sort of empirical social science looking at public views of, of all of these things, and one of the most powerful metaphors that might support to some extent what you're suggesting is that when you frame geoengineering as more natural, like more like a tree, which you could argue carbon dioxide removal techniques might be, than artifice, right, than gray technology, Um people tend to perceive, and this changes across culture potentially, but people tend to perceive carbon dioxide removal, if it, the stuff that's more natural, more like a tree, as inherently more benign than the other stuff.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, well, we'll get to the trees in a bit. Mm-hmm. So why don't we actually start um, jumping into to some of these questions? Let's talk about solar radiation geoengineering. What, what would that mean? Like, how would it work?
0: I want to caveat everything I'm about to say um, in this way because I would be remiss if I didn't. Um, Solar geoengineering as a socio-technical system, like capable of delivering geoengineering outcomes, does not exist. These all remain highly speculative ideas. Now, look, bits of hardware might exist, but as a system capable of actually deploying geoengineering... We are nowhere near where we would like to be for any of this stuff, I would argue. Um, So that's the first thing. I would say, given how little research has actually been done on this topic, I don't think that we know every idea that might come forward. Um, But the, the couple big ideas in solar geoengineering, which again is about increasing the reflectivity of the planet to cool things off, are sulfate aerosol injection is a a popular set of ideas, probably the set of ideas that has received the most attention in the scholarly literature and certainly in the media. And there the idea is that you would inject some amount of sulfuric acid or some other kind of particle into the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, in a way that would reflect sunlight. So that is the idea. And folks often talk about natural analogs for that set of ideas from volcanic eruptions. So big volcanoes that have erupted in the past have sprayed sulfates into the atmosphere and have cooled the planet. So we know that you know if you can get the aerosols up there and you can get them to stay, it will cool things down. They can also have all sorts of undesirable impacts. But in principle, that's sort of what the function of the technique
1: would be. Well, one of the striking things to me about the sulfate example is I think when I had initially heard this, what I understood as happening was you blasted something in the stratosphere and now it was just there forever. (laughs) And I've often used the metaphor uh, or the analog of in the matrix, they scorch the skies, which doesn't turn out that well, but somehow it always keyed that for me. But what I was learning as I read about this is that, no, these actually decay very quickly. So yeah. the, the the tricky thing about it actually isn't that you're forever changing the planetary atmosphere, but in fact that you have to keep doing it. And if you stop doing it, really even for a moment, they would decay out. And all of a sudden you'd have the full blast of all of the solar warming that you'd been trying to prevent until then.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. The aerosols are not especially persistent. Um, there also are like some pretty significant uncertainties still around the way that aerosols behave in the atmosphere, sort of generally. So there are some things that we suspect that we know, but for example, one area of uncertainty is how the particles stick together or not. Essentially, like their coagulative properties. And if if you put too little in the stratosphere, it won't work. Right? It won't have the intended effect of, of reflecting sunlight sufficiently. If you put too much, it could clump together and fall out of the sky. So um, some of these processes are really not well understood. And to your point, yes, the issue is not doing it once and not being able to look back, at least from like a physical perspective.
1: So the the way this would work, as I understand it, is that we would basically have flights of very high flying planes running around, bouncing the stuff into the stratosphere more or less all of the time, which sounds a little crazy, although in some ways not all that much crazier than anything else humans Mm -hmm. seem to be doing lately. Mm -hmm. But that the other thing with this is that I think it can sound to people that we'd just be putting a temperature knob on the planet. But but one of the things that was interesting to me when I was reading about it is that it would have effects um, that aren't just reversing, but would be quite different for different yeah. places. And so it was a real difficult question, even if you did want to do something like solar radiation uh, geoengineering, of how would you do it such that you wouldn't be disadvantaging certain areas over others? Like, how do you do mm-hmm. it in a way that is equitable for Africa versus Europe, say?
0: Yeah, and this is a notion that I think is sort of problematically reinforced by the ways in which we're coming to understand this set of technologies, i.e. climate models, right? Because essentially what we have done in these climate models to try to understand the more regional effects of quote-unquote geoengineering has been literally to turn down the sun in the model, (laughs) which to your point, that is not actually a good proxy for what would be happening because you would actually not be – driving the climate linearly backward, you would be creating novel climates, actually, in ways that we may not ever fully understand. Um,
1: but and this gets to something, it seems to me that's super important, is that in every version of this conversation, we are talking about novel climates we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. That It seems to me that a, a difficult part of the geoengineering debate is that when we talk about climate, we'll talk about an uninhabitable four-degree Earth versus current Earth. And then we're we're afraid because we're more or less on track for that four-degree Earth, which we functionally, although thoughtlessly, have geoengineered into being. Like We're geoengineering now. But on the other hand, when we talk about geoengineering, we tend to compare it to, to current Earth. And it seems to me that, given at least my read of the politics right now, that no matter what we're looking at, we're looking at some comparison to different geoengineered planets, either that we're going to be doing it through just our emissions, um, and we'll just made it hotter and then cut it down by whatever level we could cut emissions. Or we're going to be geoengineering it through some combination of our emissions, our mitigation strategies, and then also our effort to geoengineer. But these are all comparisons of different engineered Earths.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to push back on one thing you said, because this has been a big point of contention, again, in terms of what defines a thing as geoengineering, because you said sort of we already are geoengineering, which um, is an understandable position. But to the extent that we are geoengineering, first of all, we are doing it in a highly unequal way. That's yes. one thing. And the second piece of it is the greenhouse gas emissions, of course, are a side effect of economic activity. So the intentionality question, I think, is much more complicated. But the other point that you're making um, has also been made pretty loudly by advocates of research on this topic which is that it doesn't make sense to evaluate novel geoengineered climates or the risks of those climates or their benefits outside of the risks of climate change itself. So people often frame this as kind of a risk risk framework is the mm-hmm. appropriate way to think about geoengineering. And I, you know, I I take the point and I think obviously that's the case. Nobody would be talking about geoengineering outside of the context of climate risk, right? Like it just wouldn't even be a thing. And yet I think this notion that simply talking about it as risk-risk as if that's going to solve the problem is really problematic because what we know about technology choice is that it is not driven just um, by—that it's socially and politically and culturally constructed as much as it is about, you know, quote-unquote, science. So it still will be a very, very complicated problem. And just doing more research and comparing risks understood in a very formalistic, quantified, scientific way of— climate change versus geoengineering may not make a huge difference to the societal conversation about whether or not to do this stuff.
1: Can you drill in on that a little bit for me? Because I'm not sure I fully, uh, I fully follow. What is the alternative to the risk-risk conversation?
0: So I think, uh, you know, this. there's an insight that comes out of some of the cross-national work in political science and science and technology studies on risk and regulation, where you know The way that we tend to approach risk, first of all, there's sort of a tyranny of risk as the only way to understand environmental harm or technology choice, which is sort of a problem because a lot of stuff gets left out. But uh, the other piece of this is that if it were true that risk was an obj- sort of an objective thing that we could just identify through quantitative assessment and then regulate on the basis of that assessment, you might expect sort of much more convergence in national approaches to risk and its reg- regulation right and we do not see that actually so there are huge differences in the way different countries for example think about the risks of biotechnology and regulate those risks or chemicals regulation and so the explanation for that is that there are cultural and political roots to how we think about risk um, that are not amenable to resolution via just doing more science
1: right so so let me try to to Give an example here to make sure I understand what you're saying. So, to to just use a a totally different example, let's talk about designer babies for a minute because (laughs) let's let's keep it totally non controversial. (laughs) But you could imagine a country that says, oh, great, we have CRISPR and other forms of DNA editing or choice or whatever technology you want to choose here, and that's going to allow us to sort of shape our gene pool so that we're a little bit taller and a little bit smarter. And that's like an, that, that, that seems like an easy win for us. And another um, country would look at that same thing and say, that is a dystopic, mm-hmm. Gattaca-esque society. And that that question right there is not a question science can answer. That's a values question that will vary culture to culture.
0: That's exactly right. And what's remarkable about this is that countries that might be quite similar along a bunch of dimensions still exhibit these kinds of differences. So like Germany and France, for example, have very different relationships to nuclear power.
1: Right. But yeah. but this is true. And I think this is inter- an interesting thing about the geoengineering debate, where it almost seems to me that everything that is true about it is true about everything else in the debate, too. For instance, like how you think about growth is going to be very different culture to culture and how what, and what sort of weight you put on it. You just mentioned nuclear is going to be approached differently culture to culture. Um, and also different countries are just going to are projecting different effects from climate change. The situation Russia is in and the situation Bangladesh are in are different. And so just this question of how are you going to normalize risk expectation and what consequences people are willing to bear versus what kinds of solutions are willing to consider, that's not a, a problem distinct to geopolitics.
0: No, not at all. And actually, Steve Rayner, who's an anthropologist, and Claire Hayward wrote this great piece called A Curious Asymmetry, where they basically said, look, we're raising all of these issues and questions around geoengineering, and they may be quite valid. But it's interesting to note that we we tend not to raise them as frequently when it comes to sort of conventional approaches to climate-like mitigation.
2: box. There is a fear, and I don't think it's
1: totally illegitimate, that geoengineering itself changes the risk factor just by talking about it. The, the, one of the big fears operating behind this conversation, behind the reactions people have to it, is the moral hazard fear. That if you begin to talk about things like geoengineering, people are going to come to the view that, well, we can just turn a dial on sunshine or we can, you know, begin pulling carbon out of the air. And so we don't need to do the hard, difficult work of decarbonization now. I don't fully buy that view, but I want to note that it is out there.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is complicated and I think the jury is still out on this question, actually. And and even from a research perspective, like the empirical social science on this that has involved survey work, et cetera, to try to better understand this moral hazard issue has shown different things. So some evidence suggests that it does, that there is potential for moral hazard kind of behavior or mitigation deterrence or whatever. And other studies show that when you introduce the idea, people get even more freaked out about the severity of climate change and are more committed to decarbonizing. But, you know, I, I want to note one thing here, which is that, Sort of one of my obsessions in the discourse on geoengineering is really trying to better understand the relationship of the science we are conducting to the societal questions we claim we are trying to answer. And this is one area where I think there might be a mismatch. So when people talk about concerns about moral hazard or the idea of geoengineering distracting from mitigation, they're not concerned with Ezra Klein's willingness to pay for greenhouse gas emissions reductions, you know, before and after you personally hear about this idea. What they're actually concerned about is what political decision makers are likely to do. And it's not necessarily true that that is going to be a straightforward aggregation of individual
1: preferences. Right, and and it almost never is. Although, (laughs) well, it's a complicated, let's come back to moral hazard because I do want to have a real conversation about that, but I want to get through some of the technical dimensions here first. To almost now say the thing the moral hazard people are worried, I will say, we have a discourse about climate that I think operates sometimes correctly, to scare the shit out of people and to make them think that we are on the verge if we don't do things that are dramatic enough that I believe we will not do them in the next 12 or 15 years, um, that we are going to have an uninhabitable earth of some kind, that we're going to have an earth that is so bad that to even bring children into it might be unfair to them. And one of the things that this set of possible approaches seems to me to say is that, at the very least in the near future, there is no reason to believe we will have to have a three or four degree level of warming. That there are ways to – they're not perfect, they're, they're they're imperfect, they have their own very serious problems. But that the world in which there is so much sunshine, that we are no longer dealing with a planet that is is within habitable ranges – seems actually not as certain a thing as many people are concerned it is. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I think you're right on the science. And then I think you're also raising the political and value questions that flow from that understanding of the science, which is that we do have choice, that there is agency. And one of the concerns I have is that Declarations of emergencies do not necessarily lend themselves to better choices by societies. In fact, you could imagine um, some very bad political outcomes associated with the declarations of emergencies in which you basically suspend all politics, right? And I think that would be very bad. And count me among the skeptical that in today's political climate, declaration of a climate emergency in sort of a militaristic sense would result in equitable outcomes that would lead us to build the kinds of worlds we actually want to inhabit.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting questions about that. It's something I find that a lot of people in the climate space think a lot about this declaration of emergency question and worry about creeping fascism on the other side of it. And It actually puzzles me a little bit because if anything, the primary thing I see in politics is so far from anybody willing to being willing to actually believe there's a climate emergency and any level of public support for the kind of martial responses that that might respond to that it just, I don't know, some of the the toy models that operate in climate politics just seem very weird to me. But what are the risks of this? So, okay, it sounds on some level we could stop the very heavy levels of warming some people are concerned about if we did start doing that. What are the risks? What are the downsides to adding this sort of temperature control to Earth?
0: So first of all, I don't think we're anywhere close to fully being able to answer that question. And I think it's important to go back to my initial point about the fact that this stuff doesn't exist. Because from a societal perspective, the decision we are currently facing is not deploy or not this technology. It's like ought we research this? And I think the evidentiary standard is really different for those two sets of questions. So I think it's important to like go back to it frequently. Um, But to your question, you know, I think the kinds of things people are concerned about with aerosol injection in particular are things around stratospheric chemistry in particular. Could it harm the ozone layer?
1: That's a concern. And isn't that a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, isn't that a primary problem of certain sulfate chemicals versus there's like a calcium yeah. dimension or, like, a diamond dust you can do that doesn't do that?
0: <laughs> well, so this is a it good It sounds idea.
1: a little crazy when you're talking about it. <laughs> I
0: know. It. Trust me. Um, but this is an example of, like, where research might actually be helpful is to understand differences in particle dynamics, right? Like, people talk about sulfuric acid because it's what happens when volcanoes erupt. So we have more certainty to, to some extent about, like, what's likely to happen. I think it's still really uncertain, but we know a lot more. Um, so, you know, this question of could we design kind of engineered particles that self level or could we use other particles that might be more benign than sulfuric acid? And um, I, I don't think we know yet, but that's a, a direction for inquiry for sure.
1: It's actually interesting, given part of our earlier conversation, how much the geoengineering conversation feels very new. But in fact, the primary thing in it is very based on we saw some something in nature do this a couple of times. And so maybe we could do it too. Like this, like everything else, is actually a way of thinking about going back to, to something old, although now we would be at least conceptually in control of it. Yeah. Um- The other thing here, it does not stop ocean acidification, which seems like a big deal.
0: Yeah, I think I think it is a big deal. And look, no tool for addressing climate change is going to be a perfect panacea. If we learned anything from the last few decades, it's that. And, you know, people are starting to suggest that there might be some carbon cycle feedbacks that might actually help address this via geoengineering. But the point remains that it's probably not going to do a lot for ocean acidification. So
1: yeah, and and to just draw that out, because it took me some time to see this stuff more clearly. Um, ocean acidification is a reflection of oceans absorbing, among other things, a lot of carbon. Um, and so if you do something that is decoupling carbon and temperature, you still got all this carbon. And so the other things that carbon is doing can still be bad. Like Oliver Morden makes some arguments about, well, it might actually be good for plant growth yeah. because more carbon is actually good for crop yields, at least in some cases. And if you don't then have the offsetting weather patterns that are really bad for crop yields—maybe it's good for for agricultural growth—but then you're in a world where you have to think about what is all this carbon doing to to the world we live in, and it's going to have some effects in one direction, but certainly with ocean acidification, it looks like some pretty bad effects in that direction.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a, another good example of your point that like we are not actually driving back linear, linearly to a past state. Um, th- that this would this is a good example of how it would be a novel climate.
1: So then the other thing. Certainly in the solar radiation set of geoengineering approaches is governance, like who decides what geoengineering we're doing, who decides how much of it we're doing, who decides what the temperature should be, who decides where these things should be blasted such that you're getting one mix of temperature changes and not another like that. That question is huge.
0: Yeah, and you really can't couple the governance questions from the scientific ones to some extent for a bunch of reasons.
1: Decouple, you mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, if taking a very big step back, let, let's just game this out for a minute. Like someone does solar geoengineering, right? Um, and let's say it's under a pretty ideal set of considerations. There's general agreement among most major powers that this is the appropriate path forward and someone does it together. Um And for whatever reason, weather gets weird in some part of the world. And the scientists are saying, no, no, this weird weather is not because of geoengineering. At some level, it might not matter whether you can attribute weird weather to the deployment of geoengineering or not might not matter for conflict that may or may not be actually about geoengineering.
1: Right. It's almost a reverse of some of the climate conversation we have now over weather patterns where there'll be a hurricane and people are worried about climate. See, like this, this shows how bad climate change is. And people who are more skeptical of climate change or want to block action will say, well, you can't say any particular weather is actually the result of climate change. This would have the same dimension or politics, but reversed Mm -hmm. that the people who are in favor of the geoengineering would probably say. Well, you can't say any particular weather pattern is geoengineering and the people who are skeptical of it would want to blame almost everything on it. So that seems not great. No. (laughs) A thing you often hear is some people call it the green finger scenario, or I've heard it like described as a. You know, a couple of the countries that are more uh, at frontline risk for climate change, you can imagine like a Bangladesh and others just beginning to do this, right? If the world does not act and they are the ones who are going to be bearing the worst consequences, saying, well, if you have the right to belch unlimited carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we have the right to try to protect ourselves. And so you end up having geoengineering not as the result of some sort of international accord but four or five or six countries that see their existence or future threat and just doing it on their own? Because if nobody else has limits, why should they?
0: That to me is actually the most inspiring case for this, um, which is maybe counterintuitive. But I think it disrupts the existing international politics on climate in ways that could be useful. Like it would be it would be interesting if countries that actually were most vulnerable to climate risk had that kind of leverage for all sorts of reasons. Now, I do want to push back a little bit because I don't think that's that likely to happen. Part of those claims um, and assumptions that that would be feasible have to do with a bunch of assumptions we have made about geoengineering at very early stages, including that it would be cheap and easy. And I don't think there's enough evidence to support that that is true. And if you look at where research on this topic is currently happening, it's certainly not happening in the countries that are most vulnerable to climate. So we're not setting that situation up in any way.
1: So to talk about the 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 cheap for a minute. So what I at least used to hear was that when you're talking about something like solar radiation geoengineering it would cost tens of billions of capital costs to get like the the airline fleet together and and you know the particles and so on. But once you're doing it then it's actually pretty cheap you're just running the flights. Is that no longer the the consensus view?
0: Look, because this stuff is so speculative, the any cost-benefit analysis is entirely dependent on your input assumptions and how you bound the system. So if you were just thinking about the direct costs of doing geoengineering, um, assuming that everything works the way that we think it will based on, you know, volcanoes and our pretty minimal understanding of stratospheric dynamics, yeah, maybe the direct costs of an intervention would be relatively low, certainly compared to the costs of global Mitigation. But, you know, if you wanted to do geoengineering well, we are years out from being able to do that. Like, there are serious research questions, including on the feasibility side of the equation, that have not been. Addressed. Um, what if we find out, for example, that sulfuric acid is really, really bad for the ozone layer and we don't want to use it? And we decide that the only way that we can get particles to have the desired effects without coagulating and fall out of, falling out of the sky is to use expensive self levitating particles. That throws all of this out, the sort of cheap assu- and easy assumptions, right? So I guess I just want to push back against some of the naturalization of geoengineering as an object because it's so speculative. And then the other point is that none of that accounts for the indirect costs of geoengineering. So, for example, you know, say you're anticipating that there's likely to be conflict about weird weather. You might want to set up some kind of liability and compensa- compensation regime, and that could get very expensive. Um, so so that's just one example of some of the indirect potential costs.
1: And then there's this issue of unknown unknowns, which are obviously by nature very hard to talk about. But mm-hmm. you were just saying a minute ago All this is based on our pretty hazy understanding of stratospheric science. Mm -hmm. And it could be that we try to do something like this, certainly over a longer period of time, and it does things that nobody's expecting.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a long history of the U.S. in particular having like a particular model of the way science gets used in decision making, which assumes like, do more science. It's good for progress. It will reduce uncertainty, which will lead to rational and better societal outcomes. Uh, rational decision-making and better societal outcomes. And there are a couple of links in that chain that might not work the way that we (laughs) think they do. Um, You know, when you talk to Kate Marvel about climate science, she noted um, some of the uncertainties around equilibrium climate sensitivity. And that's an area of scientific inquiry that we've been pursuing for some time with reasonably significant resources. And more research arguably has reduced our ignorance at some level, but expanded the uncertainties. So I think this expectation that just doing more research is going to, you know, make us more certain about what will happen if we do or don't do this is probably wrong. And then, of course, how science and research gets used into decision making as it's all it's you know a separate set of complications and just to say that doesn't mean that that takes geoengineering off the table at all like societies make decisions in the face of irreducible uncertainty all the time but those decisions and that decision context tends to be better when we are honest and clear about uncertainty and its management early on
1: Oh that's that's have we ever been I don't know has <laughs> that <ever> happened <laughs> um So let's move actually to carbon geoengineering. Tell me about what that is.
0: So carbon removal is essentially this idea that you could remove CO2 emissions from the ambient air. So rather than kind of capturing CO2 as it leaves a power plant, for example, you're sucking it out of the the atmosphere. So it's removing the concentrations of CO2 that are already in the atmosphere. And then you do something with it. So you store it, you use it, you do something with it. And for it to be truly carbon negative you have to store it somewhere permanently right because if you're if you're using it in ways that it gets re-released it's at best carbon neutral
1: can you just talk about the storage issue a minute because i think for those of us who do not understand any chemistry whatsoever it just seems weird, right? Like, it's an invisible thing. Like, what do you mean you have to store it? Like, it doesn't take any... So can you talk about what it, what happens when you store it, how much space it takes, just what that dimension of it?
0: You, this might be, like, slightly too technical for me um, to give, like, a robust explanation. But essentially, you pull the CO2 using some chemical processes, for the most part, um, out of the air, and then you compress it, and then you inject it underground. So it's actually, like, if you think about it this way... Our entire fossil fuel infrastructure depends upon taking a bunch of stuff out from underground um, and releasing it into the atmosphere. And this is essentially just reverse engineering that process. So one of the thing about storage is that the sites that would be most amenable to storage in the near term are the places that have already been depleted because of oil and gas development.
1: Isn't that poetic? I know. (laughs) So how, how might we do this? It seems to me that there's everything from somewhat natural options, like planting, I think Freeman Dyson, the famous scientist, has talked about huge sycamore forests all over the world, all the way to like we're going to have machines all over the world that, that, that are running this project.
0: Yeah, so there are a couple of things, right? There are kind of quote-unquote natural techniques, which really bothers me. Um, But there are natural nature-based approaches, which include things like finding better ways to store carbon in soils through particular kinds of agricultural practices, right? So there's like a soil carbon category, um, potentially quite useful and helpful, but very uncertain, particularly around its ability to scale. Then there is... Aforestation, like planting a bunch of trees you know we know that trees take co2 out of the air but we also know that there are issues around permanence and obviously to do as much carbon removal as we are likely to need to do to keep temperature within some reasonable range we're talking about like very very significant land use implications of afforestation for example and then there is kind of like there's like sort of hybrids between natural approaches and technological approaches where you would do things like use biomass to produce energy and then capture the carbon dioxide. It's called BECCS. That's a very popular set of ideas. And then there are the more technological approaches, including things like direct air capture, where you basically like build a machine that functions a little bit like a tree, it uses chemical processes to suck CO2 out of the ambient air and then
1: store it. And my sense talking to people is that these sound really appealing when you hear them. And then when you understand the science of them, that while they might be part of a solution, I, I can't find anybody who really believes that this is the way we're going to, quote unquote, solve climate change. Like This would be the only way to solve it in the sense of taking taking it back out of the atmosphere. But
0: listen, nobody's n- nobody's solving climate change.
1: <laughs> no, well, there you go.
0: <laughs> nobody's solved. But but yeah, I mean, look, interestingly, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, when it released its report on what it would take to limit global average temperatures to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial, right? That was like the goal that countries agreed to, at least aspirationally. And then you had the, the scientists and economists build a bunch of models that tried to basically solve for one and a half degrees and those every single i think every single one of those integrated assessment models that that got us to 1.5 degrees limited things to 1.5 degrees assumed like wide scale deployment of negative emissions technologies which do not exist at scale so To some extent, if you're concerned about mitigation deterrence or moral hazard around solar geoengineering, we're already doing some element of magical thinking in all sorts of ways about, you know, quote unquote, solving climate. Uh, So the question in my mind is like, upon recognizing that large scale carbon removal was baked into these integrated assessment models, you basically have at least, you know, two options. One is like take them out of the assessment models and acknowledge that we're not going to limit warming to one and a half degrees and or. Two do the r d and d now to figure out if there's a there there, right? Um, because the worst case is that we rely on this, like magical unicorn fairy dust, and we never actually do the near-term work to figure out if we can get there,
1: so do you think it is an open question that we could get there, that it would be possible to scale up machines to this level? I mean my my understanding of this, and it's very hazy because I'm not a scientist, is that when people look at it, The number of machines, because carbon is so diluted in in the actual atmosphere, the number of machines sucking in the amount of air, then like storing the amount of carbon you would need to actually use, it isn't literally impossible to imagine, but it is such a scaled undertaking Mm -hmm. that it is harder than all of the other incredibly hard things we have to imagine. And most people just don't think it's technically that realistic.
0: So I think it's, there's the question of, you know, the, is it technically realistic? I think potentially, but as but the scalar question is the, is the toughest one. Like, can it scale? Part of this is also how much of it do we actually think we're going to need? Some of the companies that actually exist that are doing direct air capture now are doing it. Um, obviously, there's no, no one is paying a high price for the CO2. So there's really no incentive to do any of this absent a price on carbon, right? Because... Why would you pull CO2 out of the air and store it somewhere? Like you're not producing anything of value. So there's an effort to try to find markets for the use of that CO2 right now that would help make this whole endeavor economically rational. It's, um, so,
1: it's so crazy we don't have a price on carbon. Yeah. Like we have to find markets for people who want this stuff as opposed to like the future.
0: I know. Well, well so actually a tax credit that was enacted in Congress uh, last year or two years ago called 45Q basically is a price on carbon at some level. So it you get a tax credit for capturing CO2. And, you know, there's a value, that tax credit has a value. So at some level, it is sort of a price on carbon. And that's part of the reason some of these direct air capture projects are getting financed, you know, they have this tax credit for doing it. And they also, for some of these companies, they're sucking the CO2 out of the air, turning it into a synthetic fuel and then selling that fuel into markets that place a value on the sort of low carbon nature of that fuel. <laughs> so we're finding a lot of creative ways to bootstrap policy incentives together uh, to help uh, scale this stuff.
1: What's the implicit price on carbon from 45Q? Like what? Are, what is that? net out to.
0: Yeah, it varies with with what you're doing. So if you're just doing like conventional carbon capture and you're not pulling out of ambient air, it's lower than if you're pulling it out of the ambient air. And I think it ranges. I don't really want to go on the record for this because I'm not I don't have the numbers yeah. in front of me. You know, in addition to this market, I laid out around selling fuels that you make from CO2 that you pull from the air into low carbon fuels markets because you're also getting a credit for that. Um, the other option is to like put the CO2 to some other productive use, turn it into aggregates.
1: What's an aggregate?
0: Like something that gets used in uh, construction materials. Or you could think about taking that CO2 and using it in other ways. At the moment... You know, at the moment in the U.S., we are doing something called enhanced oil recovery, where we are literally taking naturally occurring CO2 out from underground, sending it by pipeline to areas of the country where the oil and gas reservoirs are somewhat depleted, injecting that CO2 into the reservoirs, producing more oil, and then selling that oil. So one option is to take, rather than source the CO2 that you are using for enhanced oil recovery from naturally, you know, sort of stored sources, pull the CO2 out from the sky and use that CO2 to do enhanced oil recovery. Obviously, that's not carbon negative, right? Um, And it's quite controversial.
1: So one, that does seem a little like (laughs) taking with one hand while you give with the other. But putting that aside... One of the things I never know how to rate with this is, is this one of those technologies where if we just give it 15 or 30 or 40 years and we actually cared about getting it right, so we're investing the R&D or putting a price on carbon, we would just be able to make it better, Mm -hmm. the way we've made computer chips better, and then it would all work out. So what you really just want to do is solar radiation for a bit while investing in this. Or is this one of those technologies that is bound by physical laws and constraints such that it is never going to get um so great that uh it's a it's a big part of the answer. Like like yeah. how do you see it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't the truth is that I don't know the answer to this at this stage, but I think there are going to be differences across like sub techniques in carbon removal. And one of the things that's really interesting about climate politics and policy right now is that. These technology forcing policies that we have enacted in lieu of like some imagined comprehensive climate plan, so i.e. a lot of publicly funded RD&D for renewable technologies, right, and like state level standards for the procurement of renewable energy and. Um, that has dramatically driven down the costs of renewable technologies in ways that people did not anticipate even like five, 10 years ago. So the question is, can you replicate that across carbon removal technologies? And I've heard some people argue that that might actually be the case. You might get economies of scale um, and cost declines in modular, you know, small kind of modular direct air capture technologies. But I just I don't I don't think we know and I don't think we can afford to not find out, I guess.
1: And and just in carbon capture, there's a difference between the idea that we're going to have massive plants based all around the world pulling in the air and just pulling it out of the air versus A more limited deployment of this, which I think you've gestured to already is happening, at least in some places, is that it's much more concentrated, um, say, coming out of a car exhaust pipe or it's much more concentrated coming out of a smokestack in an oil refinery. And so if you had the right incentives, you could at least get some of the benefit by doing that now in the places where uh, the, the, the emissions are most intense.
0: Yeah. And I think one reason this is receiving a lot more attention is because as we get really serious about like driving emissions to zero across all sectors of the economy, people are spending a lot more time talking about emissions from the industrial sector. So like manufacturing processes and chemical processes, where for a bunch of reasons, it's just much harder to decarbonize those things with like existing technologies. And one option that we are probably going to need to decarbonize industry is carbon capture. People debate the value of carbon capture for things like um, coal plants and natural gas plants in like the power sector, like electricity production. Um, But I think it's much harder to make that kind of anti-carbon capture argument in the industrial sector. And quite frankly, I think it's hard to make it in the power sector if you're talking globally.
1: But yeah, it seems to me that if we were At any minimal level serious about climate change, we would have been doing that for years now, right? Like that technology is already more or less there. The idea that we're not, I mean, one of the things that is so frustrating to me about not the geoengineering conversation, but the entire conversation is that we are so far from even doing the things we know we could do. Um, And that's forcing us to think about these much more, um, I don't exactly want to call them extreme, but ambitious and uncertain approaches. Because, like, we could have been spending 15 or 20 years now putting into play, like, the simpler technologies and mitigation strategies, and we just haven't been.
0: Yeah, and one of the things, like, this gets back to the risk management frame, because one of the things that's hard about this for me and the way I think about this is that, I think there's a tendency because of the kind of temporal urgency in the climate problem to just like pick what we think will be the optimal path for decarbonizing the economy by 2050 and just like stepping on the accelerator and obviously like the political constraints make that pretty much impossible at the current moment. Um, but even if that weren't the case, there is so much uncertainty in like these socio-technical systems that, um, that we just have no way of knowing for certain what 2050 is going to look like. And so that suggests that we should really be diversifying across all of these areas, right? Like the question should not be what's the optimal path from like a cost-benefit perspective, but like what are the things we could do now to address climate that would be robust in in the face of like multiple plausible futures. And I think that that will lead you to a potentially a very different set of near-term actions.
2: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at Greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. Let's talk about geoengineering and moral hazard. Tell me about this debate.
0: Yeah. So, for as you pointed out earlier, for a long time, part of the taboo on geoengineering has been this fear that people might actually like the idea too much. It's sort of interesting because for other emerging technologies where we're fearful that there will be controversy, the expert elite tend to be fearful of a fearful public. But in this case, there's almost a fear of an enthusiastic public, right? Um, And the idea there is that people will see solar geoengineering as a cheaper and easier alternative to reducing emissions, which it's not for all the reasons we discussed, Um, and refuse to invest any meaningful m- money or political capital in decarbonizing and just and just go with geoengineering right That's basically the fear. And I mean, I understand why people have that concern. We live in a political world that is not dictated or shaped by like a strong, but the strongest physical understanding of the science of the climate system, right? So like you can see how that might be actually a real risk. Part of the problem is that the way that we've tried to understand those dynamics, I think, has been kind of impoverished in part because... You know, as any discipline in science, the uh, sort of economists and political scientists and sociologists have tended, A, there are very few of them because the field is so small. And B, when they approach it, they take like existing tools and just lay them on. And so we'll do surveys where we ask people like, here's geoengineering. It could do this what do you think we should do? Like, or does it scare you more about climate ch- change and make you think we shouldn't be talking about this at all, right? Like we do all these things to try to understand that. But as I mentioned earlier, I don't, understanding individual perceptions about the quote unquote moral hazard question may not actually be answering the question we care about.
1: Yeah, I'm very skeptical, honestly, of the of the relevance of that kind of survey Same. work to how yeah. things play out in politics. Um, And I'm having just watched a lot of these debates move from, what do you think of this American people to actually the parties are fighting about it and people are running ads and the 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 reaction is very different once the public attention and political tension focuses but nevertheless within that the the general idea of geoengineering and moral hazard the part of it that i find a little tough to swallow is it is very hard for me to imagine the conception of either the electorate or the political elites such that you would have an electorate that is concerned enough about global warming that it would do things like geoengineering but not concerned enough about global warming that it would do anything before that. When What I what I seem to see when I look around is that the dividing line here is do you think global warming is a big enough deal to do something about? And if you think it's a really big deal, you probably support a basket of approaches um, and will need to. And if you don't think it's that big of a deal, you don't want to do anything at all. But like, given that Things like geoengineering would come out of the same basket of carbon pricing and R&D investment that would be required for every single solution on the or approach on the menu to become viable um, or to become deployed or whatever it might be. That it's just I I don't know. Mm -hmm. It it just seems to me like a false choice.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I guess the, the question one question is like if and when there is a political cost that is felt for opposing climate action and people pivot where will they pivot? I can understand what you're saying. Like, what what evidence do we have that this is where they would go of all the things that they could do? Um, but, you know, who knows? I, I just, I don't think that we know. I, For me, as someone who thinks a lot about how you can structure research in ways that are more or less responsive to um, demand for that research and societal outcomes, like, the question is, can you manage moral hazard dynamics? Like, you know?
1: My place in this, and people don't love it when I say this, but I think like the only thing I am reasonably knowledgeable about here is actual political dynamics. By the time there's a political cost of the level there will need to be to do something about climate change, it will be by the lights and schedule of the people who care about climate change too late. We are going to be way past, I'm I'm sorry, like this is just fully what I believe, like way past two degrees baked in. And probably on the on track for much, much more. And so it isn't that I don't think you should have full-scale political mobilization to decarbonize now in the next 11, 15 years, but I have I've watched too many things fail in the Senate. And that's to say nothing of what's happening in China and India and everywhere else in the world. We've not had one of these international courts actually get followed. So just by the time we're there, we're gonna need everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I I do agree with—I mean, obviously, given my risk management frame, I'm sort of an all-hands-on-deck kind of person under—but but I think that these are political and value choices, not ones that are only dictated by the science. Um, and I think that we should try—aim to be more inclusive than not in questions about sort of earth-shaping interventions, obviously. And look, I I don't think that we have the luxury to, like, decide it's too late and then turn to, like, fatalism. Like, even if right. that were true, it doesn't matter. It actually is immaterial to my— actions today, right? But but
1: that's a little bit why I actually think the moral hazard argument is another argument that to some degree is standing in for a more direct values argument. Agreed. Which is, I think the issue a lot of people have with geoengineering, um, particularly solar radiation geoengineering, is that there is a very powerful underlying view within the climate debate that the end result of this has to be that human beings appreciate more and invest more in living in some peace and harmony with nature and stop believing we can control this entire earth system versus other people who, you know, in the sort of Charles Mann wizard prophets divide are more wizards. And think what we're trying to do is keep the human experiment and endless growth and 12 billion people and eventually going to Mars and the whole thing going. And that some of this is really just that debate playing out, through an argument about political tactics?
0: Yeah, so two things. One, this is exactly why I am very skeptical that any amount of additional research on geoengineering is going to resolve that dispute. Like, that suddenly we're going to, des- societies are going to decide, like, oh, right, we've reached that evidentiary threshold and, like, science tells us that this is the right thing to do, so let's do it. Like, that's not how the world works. Um, And even within the environmental community, maybe especially. And B, to this point about like a preference for kind of social engineering over technological engineering among some facets of the climate community, I'm not taking a position over which is more desirable. Um, But one thing I will say is, again, we ought to be symmetric in our analysis of these things. Like, an imagined world in which we dra- like radically socially engineer the entire planet is also magical thinking.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and the unintended consequences of trying to slow or enter into a no-growth equilibrium for the entire—I just—I know people think about this, and I know there are arguments for it, but I just think that people should just look at what the left correctly understood about austerity politics in the past couple of years and what some of the outcomes to that have been. I am not saying that it could never happen, but by the time you're willing to get people to accept that, you would be living in such a dystopic hellscape that that would be what they are willing to accept. I'm just very like, again, this is like me playing the political analyst, but I am extremely skeptical that people have really understood the political ramifications of what that would mean. I just, I don't think it is imaginable. And here I'm like laying more cards on the table than I quite meant to, but I don't think it is imaginable under any circumstance that we would want to be in.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the context of climate, one of the things that's important about this conversation is like, we do not know how to solve climate change. Like we know more or less that we have to get our emissions to zero as soon as possible. But even then, we don't know what the world is going to look like. And we there's a lot we're going to have to adapt as we go. There are a lot of open questions. And the line as we think about planning for climate change and how to how to deal with climate change The line between ambition and delusion is, like, not at all sharp, actually. And people use ambition and delusion and the boundary drawing between the two strategically to advance their own political and value agendas. So for me... You know, say I'm someone who thinks solar geoengineering is crazy, but I'm really investing and in pl- invested in planting more trees. Like imagining, you know, a landmass five times the size of India covered in trees is not magical thinking. It's actually ambitious and desirable. But your plan to reflect sunlight with aerosols is total magical thinking and insane,
2: right? Yeah,
1: and 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 this within your, I, I really like that. And this within your risk management perspective, I think is is an important distinction. I actually don't have a very strong view on whether or not it would be better to go in one direction or another. In terms of this sort of wizard prophets, I actually find a lot that appeals to me within the we need to learn to, to live in more harmony with nature. I just think that is going to get decided by us not doing it. Um, I just look at the politics of this. I look where we are. I look where we have been. And I fully honor um, everybody who's doing work to move us faster. And like that is part of why I'm doing this series too. But in terms of trying to understand it, I think that is a choice that is going to cease being a choice given the timeframes people have. I mean, I know you're not a timeframes person, but when you hear these things like if we want to stay under 1.5, we have to do X in 10 or 15 years. And I look at where we are now, since we're not going to do X fully in 10 or 15 years, we're going to get into a position where you can't just have one of the two options you're going to need to be doing all of them at every level you can simultaneously. So it's a good argument to have. And in an idealized world, I might even come down on it. On Frankly, in an idealized world, we're going to have a very different policy equilibrium than the one we're going to have. But in the world we're in, it's why I think it's really important to be doing very heavy levels of carbon pricing and R&D now, because you want to have as many things figured out by the time we're ready to use them or willing to use them or need to use them as we can.
0: And then this gets to one more thing because I think part of the risk management frame is diversifying the set of tools, and part of it is diversifying the set of perspectives that are brought to bear on the problem, and that sometimes gets lost. And you know, we talk about we a lot when we talk about managing climate change, and I don't want to like you know this can get kind of frustrating too. But but the truth is, like there are agents in this model of the war of future world that we're referencing and are empowered in different ways or disempowered in different ways to actually engage in these choices. I don't think that's bad just as a normative um, question. I think that's bad for the substance of climate policy, actually.
1: But but this seems to me to be one of these places where geoengineering has the same problem as everything, which is that we clearly do not have global governance structures up to the task. And even to the extent we've had global governance structures that come up with accords that then don't get followed. And of course, America just began its withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, which itself is only a voluntary accord that most people were not on track to follow. But nevertheless, even those are operating without a lot of the buy-in of groups, um, you know, without a lot of the level of democratic representation you'd want to do. We've never done global governance well, like as a globe. (laughs) And this is going to be a very hard problem.
0: And I actually do think this is where sulfate aerosol injection might be different from the rest of climate politics, actually, because I would argue that a lot of climate policy can be much more bottom up. I'm not taking a position on whether it's more desirable, but like— Look at look at growth and cost declines in renewables. Like, that a bunch of different nations played different roles in an innovation ecosystem that really helped, including deployment, obviously, because innovation includes deployment um, of driving down those costs. And to the extent that we are seeing rapid penetration of renewables in, into um, our energy systems, it's in part because of those cost declines. So that that didn't require a global agreement to limit emissions. And I think adaptation is somewhat similar, like you know, making our human and ecosystems more resilient to climate related events and extreme weather events is something that we ought to be doing even in the absence of an international agreement on climate and probably could be doing. And I'm not sure that's true with deployment of sulfate aerosols. It might be true with other kinds of geoengineering, um, but I do think that might be a difference.
1: You've made the point that there's a real difference between um, a research agenda here and an ought to use it decision. So if we were to have your preferred policy going forward in terms of just the research and starting to build some of the inclusive governance and at least input processes. What does it look like? Does somebody have a bill to do this? Is there some model? I mean, what would be next steps in a sensible policy framework?
0: This is another thing that makes geoengineering so weird if you think about it in the context of other emerging technologies. Like, To some extent, it's a very small field and it's very supply driven. And by that, I mean there are a handful or more now of scientists and institutions potentially who really think we ought to be researching this more seriously, right? But if you think about the demand function as like the users of that science, either in the form of like technology developers or decision makers, there has just not been that much engagement. So it's resulted in some really funky dynamics where we're sort of at this weird research impasse. And so it makes it very hard to do research on the topic, A. And B, you know, the question of how to unstick us from our current point is hard. I think in my role as a social scientist, I don't feel authorized to make a decision about like or to take a position even about like do we or don't we research this or whatever, but I have ideas about how we could do it and potentially think about doing it in better ways. But, you know, it's almost as if the natural and physical scientists working on this are waiting for a green light from social scientists or governments. Like, they think we're all going to hand them social licenses to operate Um, at the same time that the social scientists are stuck speculating about things that don't exist. And it's pretty unhealthy, actually. And, you know, the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S. actually has a panel on geoengineering that's um, writing a report as we speak about what a research agenda on um, solar geoengineering might look like, including whether and how that research ought to be covered. So I think that report is meant to be released in the spring, and that will be really interesting.
1: And and I should say, too, there is currently... At least one big study with David Keith and others. It is supposed to begin relatively soon. I recognize. I think they're working, waiting for uh, a panel at Harvard to come up with sort of some approach to how to do it, but. We we are about to see the first sort of really significant study of solar radiation geoengineering happen in the next, as I understand it, year or two.
0: Yeah, the question is how you define significance. It certainly is one of the first, if not the first, like kind of serious outdoor experiments for geoengineering. But I think it's important, again, to keep in mind that like global funding for geoengineering research at its peak in, since 2008 is something like $8 million a year. And that's very recently because of Harvard. So like this is not... You know, there's a sense in which we always feel like geoengineering is right around the corner. And I think people who know anything about it, which in truth are not that many of us, um, can sometimes feel like it's it's almost here. But um, in point of fact, there are very limited resources going to this. Yeah,
1: the the conversation yeah. has way outpaced yep. the research funding.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing to say about um about Harvard is that, you know, so the the experiment that you're talking about is very, very small in physical scale. Um, Like, I think something like one minute of one airplane's emissions is what we're talking about injecting. So very small, probably negligible physical risk, but still potentially perceived as quite significant for all sorts of um, value reasons, including concerns that even doing research is like going to lead to a slippery slope to deployment is one set of concerns. But but the thing I wanted to say here is that... um, in the absence of robust public funding for this topic, we are seeing an uptick in private funding of geoengineering research. Um, again, still relatively small, but uh, I think that's significant.
1: So I think it's a good place to end. So let me ask you the question I was used to, to close the podcast, which is what are three books you would recommend, I think, in, in this subject or related that uh, have influenced you that you think the audience should read?
0: Yeah, so... Um, I think in the same year, 2015, two great books on geoengineering came out. One, you already mentioned, The Planet Remade remade by my good friend Oliver Morton, um, which is a really wonderful look at geoengineering. Um, Somewhat optimistic, I would say, in the scheme of things, but also Oliver just does a great job describing the profundity of the changes that humanity has already kind of brought um, to the planet. And I think it's a great
1: lyrical science book.
0: Yeah. I mean, Oliver is just a brilliant writer. Um, And then the same year, there was another book written about this topic called Experiment Earth by Jack Stilgo, which is in part, a story about an experiment that was proposed in the UK a few years ago, maybe as much as 10 years ago now, to actually do an outdoor experiment with relevance to geoengineering that ended up not happening for a variety of reasons. But Jack writes a book where he looks at research on geoengineering through the lens of kind of responsible innovation. Um, And it's a really important and great book. And then the last one I was going to mention is not a geoengineering book per se, but I think a really powerful book that kind of describes and analyzes some of the mythology around science policy in the U.S., um, really examines kind of the connections between decisions about how we fund science, innovation, and social outcomes that is really useful, called Frontiers of Illusion, written by Dan Sarowitz.
1: Jane Flegel, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Dr. Jane Flagel for being here today. Thank you, of course, to all of you. If you enjoyed the episode, if you enjoy the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Or send the show to a friend. It is how we grow. And tell me what you thought of it. I'm at at EzraKleinShowbox.com, and I'm always here to hear feedback, guest requests, um, whatever else. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Vox Media Podcast
2: Network production.